You may be seated. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're uh, visiting with us today, we are working our way through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, which is our practice. We regularly work through books of the Bible because instead of us setting the agenda, we would much prefer for God to set the agenda through His Word. And He's given us His, book, His Word in a particular form, and so we want to honor that by working our way through that. Um, if you're new to the Bible, uh, maybe you're new to Christianity or just checking us out, we've printed the text for you on page 8 of your worship guide. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those in the pew rack home so that you could have God's Word in your own home. Feel free to take those, one of those on us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 17, reading through the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning, the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your callings, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord this is God's word would you join with me and ask his blessing on his word preached let's pray God when you speak things happen out of nothing you spoke creation into existence when you speak, the mountains melt and the valleys rise up. All earth obeys your command. And nothing can stop your word from going out with power. It will always return to you with the intention with which you send it out. It's going to harden some hearts today. And it's going to make some alive to Jesus. But it will always go out with power. And so this is our cry. 
Holy Spirit, make us alive again to the gospel. Don't leave us unchanged. Let us leave here to say, like Ezekiel was promised, the presence of the Lord is in this place. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've said this um, a couple times as we've worked through the book of Corinthians. Our current cultural moment overlays the Corinthian church's cultural moment in a lot of significant ways. And so Paul's raising the issue of power and weakness in this passage. In fact, if you noticed, it's repeated over and over again. In fact, it will be for the coming chapters. In fact, power and weakness is mentioned over 20 times just in this passage. And so let me give us a working definition of power. And let me suggest it's it's this. Power is the ability to bend the world to your wishes or agenda. Power is that ability to make the world become what you think it should be. And we feel our lack of power in at least this way. Hope wanes the harder you try. Sometimes it's the discouragement of futility. You plan and you strive and you don't make much progress. You feel your powerlessness. The problem grows. Whatever the problem is, anxiety increases and you feel your powerlessness. Sometimes hope wanes because you get a little bit of success the harder you try. It's been said that the sin of middle age is apathy. Some of that's because of the heavy lifting of kids and the starting your career and and hitting your stride. You're just on cruise control. You've done your work and now it's time for you to have your day to sit back and enjoy the life that you seem to think that we seem to think we get to be rewarded with. And because of age and resources, you have more power than you've ever had At any other point in your life, you have now more of the ability to bend the world to your wishes. You've tried everything, and nothing has brought satisfaction and fulfillment and joy. You found them all lacking. You look ahead, and you know it's just not, no matter what I try next, it's just not going to provide. It's not going to give me the joy that I thought would come at this point in my life. That's why I call the book of Ecclesiastes the great book of middle age. After experiencing all of life, that all of life has to offer, the writer reaches the conclusion, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. There's no hope in effort, there's no hope in riches, there's no hope in notoriety. You've literally gone down every road and found that it's an endless trail of twists and turns that just leaves us more exhausted and without hope. And that's partly what apathy is. When you're in your 20s, the world looks so promising. There's so many things to try, and it's easy to be convinced that you're going to try them in ways that nobody else has, and so at the end, there's hope in front of you. But whether you're in your 20s or your 30s, or looking forward, or your 50s and 60s and looking backwards, this is what the Paul calls in verse 20, the wisdom of the world. It's an attempt to bend the world in the direction of the ideal. The wisdom of the world does not, Paul says, lead us to know God. You see, the power of God, the power of God 
comes in a different form. The power of God doesn't come by him raising his voice or demanding his way or insisting on his agenda. The power of God, and this is Paul's point, comes through a crucified Savior and then comes through the cruciform message of the cross. That's God's wisdom and its foolishness to the world. Now, Keaton next week is going to pick up on the cruciform way that the message of the cross comes bearing the power of God, particularly through the foolishness of preaching. But in general, God's power always comes through what the world around us is going to consider to be weak and foolish. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with the words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, remember that Corinth is a meritocracy. Unlike the rest of the Roman Empire, when the rest of the Roman Empire was largely built, your power and status were largely built on the family that you were born into, birth status. Corinth was a city that was set aside, a place where you could actually make a name for yourself. And in a place where you could make a name for yourself, you could move up the world and then gain power so that you could bend it towards your Wishes. It was a place of ambition and accolades and accomplishments. In fact, Corinth had Olympic, had um, an athletic games that was second only in the world at the time to the Olympic Games. Why in Corinth was that? Because power was celebrated and athletes displayed their power by their athletic prowess. And now Paul's point to the church in Corinth is that the power of God comes has come to them. But the power of God's come to them subversively. It's come under the radar. And it's come to straighten out a really, really bent world. Look at verse 19. Paul quotes here from Isaiah 29, 14. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I'll thwart. Here's what's going on in Isaiah 29, and while Paul is looping it in here, God is promising in Isaiah 29 a return from exile. The exile was an act of God's judgment, it was a work of decreation. As a punishment for sin, God was making the world inhospitable, a less than ideal place. He had exercised his prerogative in punishing Israel. And as a result, the world is just going to start falling apart around them. But God's not going to leave them there as he ever does. As as Mark reminded us from Ezekiel 37, God always with his people on the other side of discipline promises resurrection life. And so he's going to tell them, look, I'm going to return you from exile. 
I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to continue to exert my power and my presence in your midst. And if exile was decreation, then the next thing that I'm going to do is new creation. And so he says at the beginning of the verse in Isaiah 29, 14, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things for this people, wonder upon wonder. You're, not gonna, you're gonna be amazed at the work of grace that I'm gonna do in your midst. My power is gonna be exerted. It's gonna rebuild everything. And the next phrase is what Paul quotes in verse 19. He's not going to bring the new creation through the wisdom of the world. Rather, he's going to show the utter foolishness of conventional thinking. God's going to turn the upside-down world right side up again. And so in verse 20, Paul asks some rhetorical questions. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Where are the pundits who have explained the world to us and offered their solutions? Look around. Have any of them exercised their power to make the world a new place? A, such a drastically different and better place that we can say the old is gone, the new has come? Look at the psychological realm with all of their assessments of human nature and human problems. Are we any better off as a whole because of their insights? Granted, we are better because they've given us some to tools to cope with our brokenness. But have they transformed us so that we can say the new has come, the old's gone? Everyone's got a platform in today's age. Information has been democratized. It's a good thing. We have more knowledge than ever before. And we've put so much hope in education. But where is the wisdom? In all of our attempts to make the world a better place with utopian dreams that with just a little more effort, we believe, or just a little more information, it's just around the corner, we can fix just about anything. And our wisdom, if you haven't noticed, has been thwarted. We've just proven powerless and our wisdom empty. What we stand in need of is the God of the new creation to come and do a new thing. To do wonder upon wonder with his people. And I think this reveals the deeper underlying problem. The wisdom of this world is utterly empty and lacks power. We stand in need of the power of God to come and undo all of the brokenness in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our affections. And then eventually to bring a new creation by his power. But we need to be expectant of how it is going to come. Because God's power comes in a different form. 
Again, it doesn't come by him raising his voice or demanding his way. I've said all throughout our study of 1 Corinthians right now that the power of God is like a glacier. On the surface, it seems like nothing's going on. But deep underneath, with tremendous force, it's resurfacing what's unseen. So the entire landscape of the unseen world is changed. And the power of God is going to come through a crucified Savior and then come to us through the cruciform message of the cross. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then verse 20. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleases God through the folly of what we preach, or quite literally preaching, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. One of the reasons that we miss out on the power of God is precisely because of the way that God has wrapped up his power and presented it to us. Verse 22. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. And I often say if Paul was writing to us today, he'd say, and Americans seek hype. But the wisdom of God and the power of God are wrapped up in weakness and heavenly foolishness. It was the wisdom of God to send His Son as a king to reign over the world and recapture a land that was held by rebels. Dissidents had taken over God's territory and held His image captive under sin. And so God, in His wisdom, this is the plan that He sent forth. I'll, I will... Take care of this problem. And so he sent his son who had entered the dissident's land. The son would heal the dissident's captives. He would speak redemptive stories to the dissidents. He would sit down at their tables and eat with them. He would tend to their outcasts. He would raise their dead. And then because of the kindness of the son, the son would be rejected and killed By the dissidents who held the land. And in the wisdom of God. Their rebellious murder of the son. Would become the means of their own salvation. In the wisdom of God. They would contribute to their own redemption. By killing the son of the king. For the plan all along would be for the son to be sacrificed. By the rebels to atone for their own Sin and the power of God is unleashed in the wise plan of God. It's on display. He has ordered all things according to the word of his power. And that ordering isn't to drive out the rebels from his land, but to save them. And he hid his plan in the flesh of a baby born into poverty who never owned a home or land never earned a degree, was rejected by the places of power, and then crucified by the ruling elites. The 
power of God hidden in the wisdom of God. It seems so foolish to the world that was watching. We never do it this way. And now the gospel must come to us with the power of God in a form that matches the wisdom of God and the power of God displayed in the cross of God. The gospel will always, in this way, always, always be countercultural. The gospel will be countercultural in what it requires from the life of Jesus' followers. It'll always be countercultural because the world is shaped by the wisdom of the world. The life of the Christian will always be countercultural. But the church, we must also believe, will always be odd in the way we work. Because the power of God always comes in weak and hidden forms. The power of God always comes wrapped up in the form of weakness. This is the point. The power of God comes by the word of the cross. But the power of God also comes by the word of the cross. Both are weak. But Paul says, look, I didn't come to you with great... This is the... Jeff and I were talking earlier. This is like the preacher's favorite text. Paul's like, I wasn't that good at speaking to you. In fact, they make fun of him. He's small. And he's like, he's timid in there. They're like, you write really boldly, but when you're amongst us, you don't seem all that great. And Paul's like, that's the point. The message and the means have to complement each other in weakness. If not, you're robbing the church of its power. If the message and the means aren't in weakness, then the church is emptied of its power. Verse 17, for Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied in its power. I once heard it said by a ministry that we have to make Jesus exciting for the youth of today. We can't afford to have a boring Jesus. I thought, is it possible to have a boring Jesus? And he needs no help. He has been given all power and authority over all creation. He upholds the entire world by the word of his power when he speaks the wind and the seas obey his command if you think he needs a little fun or glitter or lights or a rocking percussion section no offense jeff to get people captivated you will empty the cross of its power it always comes through weak means and weak people Jars of clay, as we'll see. Unfortunately, I think too much of the church's ministry, too many Christian ministries, is like using a filter on a glorious picture of a Swiss Alps vista. The beauty of the Swiss Alps is uncontested. The, the blues of the lakes are deeper than you can imagine. The, the grass pops 
like nothing you've ever seen. The grand scale, the mountains, the depths of the valleys will cause you just to linger, even at a picture of it. And a filter just takes that inherent glory away. It doesn't need any help. Just let its glory stand out. Just perhaps, let me suggest that too often this is why our experience of Jesus' power is so weak. Because we've rejected the weakness of God and the foolishness of God. And instead sought quick fixes that are marketed to us and hyped experiences that last for a moment. We seek the lights and the excitement of an arena. And then we show up here and it seems just so dull and boring. Those things lack the transfer, those highs lack the long-term transforming power because God has married his power to a particular means and it always looks weak. Because the wisdom of God and the power of God are always couched in the foolish and weak ways of the word of his cross. If you're visiting with us, I often say... um, If this is your first Sunday, we aren't very sexy. But give us four to six weeks and see if after a while you are experiencing the power of God in your life. And to prove this to the Corinthian church, he takes them to a case study in verse 26. He says, look, this is how the power of God works. For consider... Your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Now, calling in Paul is technical language for what we might say today is a conversion experience. Remember, he's saying, when you became a Christian. Remember at that moment that it was God calling you to Jesus That was God's working. He did that. Perhaps the real display of power is not the ability to help someone, quote, cope or simply manage their behavior or manipulate their behavior. Real display of power is not the ability to win over a crowd or sell a product or elicit an experience or to gain a platform. The real display of power is the ability to see someone radically changed from the inside out. That's real power. To see something old, someone old transformed into someone new, to see something become more than just a minor behavioral change, but a radical transformation of the heart of a person. That's real power. And it's so difficult that caring professions have the highest rate of burnout. The more you're involved with helping someone, the more you want to see them change and the more you feel helpless. Ask any parent of a teenager. And that combination of care and helplessness is the recipe for exhaustion. You'll seldom find carpenters or landscapers burning out. Sometimes you will. But you will find nurses and healthcare workers 
because their day is intensely involved with this dynamic. I've gotten near. I've cared about this person. I want to see them helped. But I can't convince them to change. I know if they would just make these few minor changes in their life, that they would be in such better place physically and with their health. But I can't convince them to change. And I know where this is going to go. And I know I'm going to have to clean up the mess when it's done. I care. I want to help. I can't. They won't change. And I'm in a cycle of futility. That's why healthcare workers burn out and get discouraged. Now take this also as an encouragement. This is Paul's point. God in his power has done what no human wisdom has ever done. He has changed the hearts of broken sinners. And to prove this point, Paul says, look at your conversion. Look what God did. It's a case study for Paul. All this worked out. God initiated a relationship with you while you were perishing in rebellion against him, hating him with all your heart, seeing the gospel as a foolish, meaningless thing. And God's power completely broke into your life and made you new. For many of us, when that happened, we weren't looking for Jesus. We were looking for something else to help us. We were looking for joy. We were looking for fulfillment. We were looking for deliverance from bad patterns. We were looking for something in the wisdom of the world to help us out. Some of us may have hit rock bottom, which means I felt the futility of those things. But at some point, we're all looking for something else besides Jesus. And Jesus found us and convinced us that he was the one that we needed. There's not a single person who's in Christ. That is not a description of your life. I was looking for something else. Jesus found me. Jesus convinced me. That's your calling. God called you out of darkness into the light of Jesus. When you heard the shepherd's voice saying, come to me. And then you came. He convinced you of your sin and your misery, enlightened your mind in the knowledge of Christ, renewed your will, thus convincing you and enabling you to embrace Jesus Christ as he was offered to you freely in the gospel. You may even, most of us, a lot of you even heard the gospel. I can't tell you how many times I heard the gospel. Just one day it clicked. That was because of God's calling on your life. And if you are in Christ, you can look distinctly and say, I'm not who I once was. And if you're honest, you'll also say, I tried everything to change myself and could not, but I'm a new person because the gospel broke into my life. God exerted his power. The word of the cross came. And it came through weakness and foolishness, often wrapped up in a person of no significance or abilities. And God called you to himself. He made you alive together with Christ. And that was all a display of his power and weakness. For consider your callings, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth, but God. Those are, again, those are the amazing words. It's always at the heart of the gospel. This is who you once were, but God. You were under God's wrath, dead to sin. God made you alive together in Christ. God exerted his power and bent the world, your world, towards the ideal, which is to see Jesus as enough. You were nothing. God turned the world upside down. And made it right side up by choosing what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Because the whole weight of redeeming what is broken in the world and in your life. And in your children's life. And your loved one's lives, And your neighbor's life. And in the world at large. The whole weight of doing that work of redemption is dependent on the power of God because it's on the shoulders of Jesus who makes all things new. But it'll always come wrapped up in weakness. Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our redemption and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. He's done it all. His power has been displayed. And now his power comes to us moment by moment through the sufficiency of his word, which is always wrapped up in weakness. So take heart, my friends. This thing that we participate in, just it seems so plain, doesn't it? But the power of God is on display. And working. But also take heart because the, I think the number one reason, I'll know this, and I don't know about you, but the number one reason I don't share the gospel with people is because I feel my insufficiency. I won't know what to say. I won't know how to respond. They'll think I'm an idiot. They won't like me anymore. All of them just, just put in the category of I feel weak. And then look at those and go, that's my greatest asset. I think of those as liabilities, but that's actually, I, I need to rewrite the columns. That's not an, a liability, that's an asset. For if in my weakness I bring to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the power of God and the wisdom of God will be unleashed. Let's pray. Father, if, if we would believe this, we would experience so much freedom in our lives, in our parenting, in our care for our loved ones and our spouses. For we would simply trust you to work. To work in our own lives. We would trust you to change us. We would trust you to change our loved ones. We would trust you to do the work of redemption. And we wouldn't be ashamed of our weakness anymore.
but instead we would boast in it. For when we are weak, then you are strong. And so as we come to this table, it is again a reminder to us that something that looks so ordinary, so minuscule as bread and wine, in your hands and by your Spirit, will bring to us the redemptive power of God because it's wrapped up in the cross. And so cause us and these elements to be for your glory so that we might boast only in this. God is the Redeemer. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.